This audio recording is of our regular Sunday service, October 29th, 2017, at Restoration Road Church in Snohomish, Washington. The reader is Mark Haxo. The speaker is Sam Ford. More information can be found at rdchurch.com. found in the Old Testament book of Ezra, the third chapter, beginning with the 10th verse. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals, to praise the Lord, according to the directions of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord. For he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of the father's houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid. Though many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. This is God's Word. Well, good morning. We are starting a study, somewhat brief study, comparatively in the book of Haggai. And you might go, but wait, he just read from Ezra. I know, um, but it is important to set that up. And that's what this is. It's a little bit of an introduction so that we can understand what is happening. So I'm going to pray. Keep your hand in the book of Haggai. I'm sorry, Ezra, where you're at in the very beginning. And we will uh, spend some time there. So let me pray first. Holy Father, we thank You for Your Word. Every single jot and tittle of it, every word, every sentence, every paragraph has been breathed out by You to give us encouragement so that we might have hope, we might be equipped to do every good work. I thank You for Your Word. This morning, Lord, I pray You'll move me out of the way. Holy Spirit, You'll speak the words that need to be spoken. Words of conviction, words of comfort, words of instruction. Lead us all to the cross. And make it look larger to us, Lord. That is why we're here, to give You praise, to give You thanks, and to glory in all that You have done. So I pray that that happens through this obscure book that perhaps we have not given enough attention to. It is in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. So, to begin, I want us to understand that there is only one story of God. It's an important story. It's a big story. This one story has one beginning, one conflict, one hero, one climax, and one perfect resolution. Many know that in my previous life, I was an English teacher. It's not that I love literature. I just love to teach, but in literature, there's plot and conflict and climaxes and resolutions, all these things. And so I I like to think that way about the story of God. It's easy for me. And we think about the resolution, we think about the ending, if you will, of God's story of where does this all end? 
You know, the Bible tells us where this all ends. So we're going to cheat a little bit and go to the end of the story and begin perhaps in at least the second to last chapter of the Bible, Revelation chapter 21. And in Revelation chapter 21, there's a few verses that you may have skipped over or may have not given enough attention to, but it's this ending of the story that actually gives us a picture or understanding of the overall purpose of the entire story. And here's what it says in Revelation chapter 21, verse 1. It says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adored for her husband. Check this out. And I heard a loud voice from the throne. This is God. We're assuming He's the only one on the throne. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be His people, and God Himself will be with them as their God. That is an incredible passage. And by incredible, I mean it tells us the whole purpose of all of this. And the purpose is to be with God. That's His goal. The story ends with God's people, His people, His possession in His place that He has created living in His presence. And you see that theme throughout Scripture. The people and the place and the presence of God together. And that's where it all ends. Now, God's story, like every story, has many chapters. In fact, the Bible, though the chapters and divisions are made by men, there are 1,189 chapters in the Bible. Some of these chapters are dull. Right? You're reading like, genealogies? Wow. Difficult to get through. Some of these chapters are action-packed and like, it's just wow. Right? War and, and, and crazy things happening. Some of the chapters are very encouraging. Others are really disturbing. But we believe that every single word of every one of these 1,189 chapters is breathed out by God intentionally and useful to equip us for every good work that we might do in life. Now, knowing that, it's strange, I think, that for most of us, for many of us, we actually ignore 78% of the chapters in the Bible. And by that, I mean the Old Testament. I don't know the last time you opened up Ezra or Haggai for your personal devotion time, or if you even knew that Haggai was a book in the Bible. But we ignore 78% of the Bible when we ignore the Old Testament, and as a result, we actually fail to understand the, the story, at least the fullness of the story of God. Right? Imagining reading a hundred chapter book and coming in at chapter 79. That's where you start. And yes, you would get some things from that. You would learn some things from that. But you'd actually be confused by quite a lot. And you would not get the full message of at least God's self-revelation in the Bible. I find that we skip chapters a lot. We skim chapters. 
Or we have a tendency to settle on the few chapters that we really like, and we kind of make this little abridged Bible that we spend our time in, when in truth, most of our abridged Bibles don't include the book of Haggai. So, Haggai is an amazing book. I'll say that about every book. But it's an amazing book. It's a small book, but it's full of big truth. Practically speaking, if you know, what is Haggai about? Haggai is about the rebuilding of God's house, of the temple of God, in a certain time, in a certain place, and we'll talk about that. But spiritually speaking, as we go into Haggai, I want you to understand that it's actually about the rebuilding or the restoration and the priority of God's presence in our lives. Haggai is not some uplifting, feel-good book. It's actually a book that confronts us right in the face. He is the Haggai, we don't know a lot about him actually. He's the 10th of 12 minor prophets. They're called minor not because they're insignificant or less significant, but because they have a shorter amount that God spoke to them. And prophets, like the Hebrew word for prophet is nabi, and that comes from this root word meaning to bubble forth or like as from a fountain to, to utter. And what you have is prophets basically because they're a Major prophets and their minor prophets. And these prophets are basically authorized spokespeople for God. They proclaimed a message that they're not just making up. They're not just sermonizing. They're actually speaking for the Lord. Like what they say is what the Lord says. That's why it always says, thus saith the Lord. The Lord says. It is God's words coming forth. And so these guys, these spokesmen were, were preachers. They weren't just predictors, though they did tell about future things at times. But they're also watchmen. In other words, these were the guys, they, they proclaimed God's word, they foretold God's will, but they also warned of God's wrath. They were not popular guys. Many of the prophets were hated. Some of them were chased out of town. God often used them in the most strangest of ways to represent His relationship to His people. He would ask His prophets to do some pretty grotesque things, some strange things. Hosea, one of the prophets, is asked to go find a prostitute named Gomer and marry her as a symbol of the relationship that God has with His adulterous people. And so prophets, like that's not the like, hey, I want to be a prophet. It's not... The job you signed up for, it was chosen by God and He spoke through them. But we know very little about Haggai. We don't know his backstory, his lineage. We don't know a lot. But we do know that he is a man whom God chose to rebuke His people through. And I believe He's going to use that for us to come and confront us with some hard truth. Now, just so... We understand when this is happening. He prophesied about 530-ish B.C. Okay, so 530 B.C. That is about 500 years-ish before Jesus comes. At his time, he's also about 500 years after the first king rose to power in Israel. Okay, so you got 500 and 500. At this point, Israel is not a nation doesn't really exist, though they are a people. Uh, in many ways, Haggai, like this, the story is kind of um, a repeat of the experience that happened in the Exodus. So in 
our women's studies right now, they're going through Exodus. And so this is a little bit of a replay of that, which the story of the Exodus and the redemption out of Egypt is a story that is an identifying story for God's people. But this is about a thousand years after that, give or take. Now, if you're familiar with the Exodus from Egypt, right, the, the coming out from Egypt, Moses, this guy led people to the promised land. And then his second in command, Joshua, who became General Joshua, he led his people through the promised land. So Moses too, Joshua through. And then after Joshua died, these guys named the Judges, which is a crazy book to read, they led God's people or saved God's people at different times in different ways while they lived in the promised land. That's your book of Exodus and Joshua and Judges. Now, beginning with Moses, like they, they come out of Egypt and God brings them to the mountain to make the covenant and give the law to them and He also gives them the instructions. And the instructions He gives them is, I want you to build this tabernacle. I want you to build this kind of portable temple whereby I will dwell with you. And that is where my people will serve me and they will minister and mediate the relationship between God and His people. And so we read about this. Uh, the tabernacle that was built was modeled after the Garden of Eden. And what I mean by that is you read the details because God is very specific in how He wants this thing built. You have the curtains that have like stars and stuff etched into it. You've got stuff that has trees and all this garden imagery because the presence of God is going to dwell in this tabernacle in the same way that God's presence dwelled with them originally in the garden. And what's amazing, if you look at the end of the story in the book of Revelation, you see this city coming down and in the middle of the city is another garden. And so the presence of God and the dwelling of God. And so after this tabernacle is finally constructed and they're kind of christening it to begin, here's what happens. As soon as they finalize kind of the last details, it says, then the cloud, this is the cloud that was leading them through the wilderness. The cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And it later says that the people were not able to even enter it because it was so glorious. Now, we don't have photos at that time, right? So people imagine what that was like. And so you got to imagine Israel's not just like a few campers, like millions of people. If you read throughout the Bible, you'll see that they're organized according to tribe in a certain order around this tabernacle. But in the center of their camp is God's house. And in God's house, very visibly, is His glory. So if you want to know where God was, there He is. Right? Certainly God is present everywhere, but He localized Himself in a very rich and beautiful and powerful way in this tabernacle. And when the cloud lifted up and started to move, they're like, alright, let's lift camp and let's go. And they'd set up camp again and set the tabernacle up according to how God said to do it. And then, boom, it'd fill it again. And so this was truly a people that God was tangibly dwelling with. That's really important. After the time of the judges, though, they had no leadership. And some would say the last judge, a prophet named Samuel, recorded in 1 Samuel, the people rejected God's leadership and said, we want a king. So he anointed this king named Saul. And Saul, his reign didn't last too long. 
Um, God rejected Saul and he eventually anointed David. And David, uh, his story is recorded basically in 2 Samuel, though he, at least his, his rule. And David wanted to build God a permanent house. And God said, nope. But you can get it ready. So he prepared basically for his son named Solomon who would build him this permanent temple in the same form of this temporary temple, the tabernacle, which is in the same form of the garden that God originally dwelled in. Okay? And so they construct it according to God's instructions, using God's material, all these things. And then as they're christening it and praying, something again happens. It's in Second Chronicles. And it says this, as soon as Solomon finished his prayer, like can you just imagine this experience? Like they've built this permanent home and they put all these sacrifices out there. And they're like, okay, Lord, this is your home. And then suddenly, boom! You'd be like, okay, God's here. Right? God's here. Like if that happened, like when we did our call to worship, our call to worship is like, all right, here, call to worship, Priya. And you guys, okay, let's get this going. Right? And you're like kind of tired. Like you wouldn't happen if God's presence like, like that happened. I do believe God's presence here would be like, dang, that's rad. Like, the church is on. So, that's what happened. It says, it finished his prayer. Fire came down from heaven, consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And again, the priest could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. And then it says this, when all the people saw the fire come down and the glory of the Lord fill the temple, they bowed with their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshipped and gave thanks to the Lord for He is good, it says, quote, for His steadfast love endures forever. One of the most common phrases of praise in the Old Testament. Can you imagine that? We have a photo from back then. Like, no, but... You can imagine, like, just like, whoa, I know where God is. God is with us. God is among us. It was amazing. It was inspiring. But it caused them to get on their faces and say, praise the Lord, thanks to what He has done, what who He is. It's powerful. That story is recorded in 1 Kings. But after Solomon dies, things go poorly. There's a little bit of a civil war of who's going to reign after Solomon. And eventually, in a short amount of time, the kingdom is divided. Divided into north and south. The north is called Israel and the south is called Judah. So as you're reading your Bible and it speaks sometimes in the Old Testament to Israel and to Judah, you have to understand who is he speaking to. Is it all of Israel? Is it just the north, the south? Over about three to 400 period time, uh, there were 42 different kings that reigned in one of those two areas. Most of them were bad. A few of them were good. And good and bad determined by whether they led their people into idolatry or they led them into the pure worship of God. God brought prophets at different times in different ways. And many of these prophets were contemporary. So they didn't just go in order like next, next. Sometimes it was at the same time. Haggai and Zechariah come at the same time actually or very close to one another like within weeks. But prophets would come and they would say, you guys are sinning. You guys need to turn to the Lord. You guys are, you need to get rid of your idols. All these things. And they didn't listen to them. Sometimes they killed those, the prophets. Sometimes they chased them out of town. Sometimes they just ignored them. 
And so, God said, I need to punish my nation. I need to punish my people. So the question is, how do you punish an entire nation? How do you spank an entire nation? You raise up another nation. And that's just what God did. He raised up a pagan nation named Assyria. And Assyria came and conquered northern Israel almost all the way to Jerusalem in about 722 B.C. Now, many Jews at that time were spread out in the Middle East. They were taken into exile. But after a time, God punished Assyria. So He raised another pagan nation to punish the pagan nation that had punished His chosen nation. And that nation was named Babylon. That's the guy where Daniel comes in and things of that nature, right? Babylon comes and he conquers all of Assyria and conquers the rest of the remaining part of Judah and Jerusalem. And they take all the important culture-shaping Jews away. And they exile all of them. They put their own people living in the land. And then they do something that hadn't been done before. They leveled the temple. They took it down piece by piece and crushed it so it was nothing but dust. They took all the temple stuff back to Babylon. The people of God found themselves enslaved. The place of God was seized and, and ruined. And Ezekiel 10, who is one of the prophets, says that the presence of God left. That the glory left the temple and left the people. Now, the truth is, God is the one who punished His people. God is the one who drove His people into the hands of the Assyrians and the Babylonians. God is the one who, in many ways, enslaved His people and condemned His people. And if God is the one who has allowed and even driven His people into slavery, it is only God who is going to be able to save them. And so through the prophet Jeremiah, God promises this future restoration. And my guess is, it's a very common verse, a very familiar verse that uh, you probably have on your wall somewhere or you've said it to somebody, maybe not knowing what the context actually is. But he tells them as they're going into Babylon what's going to happen. Jeremiah is basically warning the city of Jerusalem. And, and Jeremiah is one of those prophets that God said, hey, I'm going to raise you up. By the way, no one's going to listen to you. Like, oh, that's fantastic, Right? So he's preaching and no one's listening. He's weeping over the city because he knows what's going to happen. And here's what he says, speaking for the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon. So they have a time frame. They have control. You realize that? That these governments that rise and fall, these governments that are doing, like they're all in God's hands. So he says they got 70 years and they'll be completed for Babylon. I'll visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise to bring you back to this place. Recognize this verse? For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. It's important to remember that God is speaking that to people who are being punished for their sin. People who are being driven into exile because they refuse to worship the Lord. He's like, I have plans for you, but it's going to hurt first. And he goes on. Then you will call upon me after these 70 years and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. 
I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I'll bring you back to the place from where I sent you into exile. Right? What does He promise? I promise to restore you as a people. I promise to restore you to this place. I promise to be present and live and dwell with you again. And so 70 years pass. And they're enslaved. And you're like, okay, that's great, but now how do you get them out of slavery? How's that going to happen? Is he going to raise up another nation, like a godly nation, to bring them out? Like, what's going to happen? He does raise up another pagan nation to punish the pagan nation, who punished the pagan nation, who punished his chosen people. And that nation was named Persia. And Persia basically conquered basically the world, conquered Babylon. And it did this about 538 B.C. And Ezra is a priest and a scribe living in exile during this time as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, rises to power. And it had been said, I believe, to the prophet Isaiah before Cyrus rose to power that I have my anointed king Cyrus. Think about that for a second. A pagan king that God says, this guy is my anointed king, my shepherd, whom I'm going to use to rebuild my house and lay its foundation. So Ezra chapter 1 begins like this. In the first year, so soon as Cyrus rose to power, wipes out Babylon. It's been about 70-ish years. The word that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, which we read, might be fulfilled. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, the king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Okay, read this slow. This is a pagan king who has conquered the world, who is not worshiping Yahweh. And yet, it says the Lord stirs the spirit of this king to make a proclamation and put it in writing. He's not just saying it, he's declaring it, making it law. And what does he say? Thus says Cyrus the king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. Literally, he rules the world. And he has charged me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Now that's weird, right? Like, what? 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 You have conquered the world. You worship who knows how many different gods. Like, the Lord, the God of the Jews has given me all this and He wants me to build Him a house in Jerusalem. And then He goes further. He doesn't say it here. Actually, if you read further, He goes, not only that, I'm going to fund it all, go into the treasury, get all the stuff that we took all the different utensils for the temple, give it all back to them. I'll pay for it all. You do this. If you don't, you're going to die. Okay. Right? Can you imagine hearing that as a Jew or just even as a Persian? Like, what, what is the big deal about God's sovereignty on display in the most powerful way? He declares that they are going to return to Jerusalem. But not only that, they're going to build a house, which means he's committed to ensuring they restore worship in Jerusalem. What you see in the most simplest of ways as you think about 
the process, if you will, that God brings us into His presence, we cannot and we will not return to God unless He makes it so. You realize that there was no way that the Jews could just go, hey, seven years, guys, let's go. God said. They weren't going anywhere. They had no rights. They were completely depressed. They were enslaved. They were stuck. Unless God did something amazing, they weren't going anywhere. And He does something amazing. He releases them from slavery. He frees them so that they can return. But that release has to come first. And it comes in the most unexpected and unexplainable, but the most powerful and irresistible way. This is an act of God's sovereignty that works itself out here in history with these people, but also in our own lives where He frees us and suddenly we're able to go. We're able to walk toward Him into His presence because He in many ways is pulling us into His presence. But pulling us into His presence, drawing us to where He is at, means the release, if you will, of a certain kind of life. We have this idea that they were enslaved like they were in Egypt, what isn't the case. They had been living in this land for 70 years, and Jeremiah the prophet said, live fully in this place. Have families. Build homes. Get good jobs. Do these things. And now, they're going to have to release a certain kind of life that they have. And it's not all bad. But release from a certain kind of life which is ultimately a life under the shadow of idolatry will always proceed to return to God. You will not return to God unless you are free. You cannot return to God unless you are free. And what happens next? As you read in Ezra, then rose up the heads of the father's house of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit had stirred to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. You see what happened? Not everyone returns. Not everyone goes back when the green light is lit. There are those that God stirred. Only those who God stirred in their spirit said, let's go back. And if you read Ezra 2, which I won't because it's one of those dull chapters, but it lists every person that goes back, at least their families and their, their tribes. And it amounts to, actually gives the number, 42,360 people that return. And I guarantee you there were many thousands more than that who had actually been in exile. And yet, there's only a small number who return to God. And most of them, they even tell them what they do. Like we talked about genealogies last week. They kept very specific records. What was your job? What family did you come to? Because many of them have particular jobs about caring for the house of the Lord that only they could do. And so many of the people that go back are those that actually whose job it was, Levites and gatekeepers and, and singers and temple servants who were supposed to care for the house of God. They were stirred by God to return. The people, as I said, had lived in Babylon for 70 years. Can you imagine? Most of us have not lived in this area for 70 years. Some of us maybe have. But can you imagine living in one place for 70 years? Like you would have some root. How could you not have some roots? Some relationships? Something to keep you there. 
And returning to Israel wasn't like, hey, we're going to return back. We're going to have the life that we used to have. We're going to have our homes. They had nothing. They had nothing. There was nothing in terms of earthly attraction to draw them back to Israel. They were giving up much to return. So perhaps it makes sense that God had to stir people. There was also, while there were many who knew no other life than Babylon, they were born in Babylon, they lived in Babylon. Seventy years is a long time. But there were those who were much older. So they were at least 70, because it later will say that they saw the temple. So they were most likely at least 80, 90, 100. So there's an older contingent of people who were there when Babylon conquered their land. They actually saw the temple be destroyed. And they, perhaps more than anybody else, has waited for this day. The day that they get returned. But in, in the midst of exile, in the midst of all these people spread out, God has preserved, and this is a common theme throughout Scripture, this remnant, this faithful remnant who He would choose and He would stir and they would abandon this this really pretty great earthly life that was apart from God for what amounts maybe to a lesser earthly life to be with God. That's, that's calling. Like we throw out calling all the time. I think sometimes just to authorize whatever we feel like we want to do. I feel called to do this and I feel called to do this. And some of the most real calls that I have seen, I think if we're going to talk about what, what characterizes a call, it's perhaps different than just a desire. Like Those people who are stirred here are not just returning to a homeland because that's, that's where we're from. They're returning to be in the place where God said, I will dwell. Like the characterizing mark of someone who is returning to God. Right? We talk about the idea of people walking away from God, of people like turning from God, well, have you ever thought what it looks like for someone to return to God? Like, what, what does that look like? Is it just them saying, I just want to, I like God again? And just kind of going through the motions? I, I'll tell you that I think the thing that characterizes a return to God most is that they're never talking about what they're going to get, but who they're going to get. And in fact, I would say that a call of God, a stirring of God, in many times requires great sacrifice and great loss. That they are actually pursuing something that is going to mean less glory, less comfort, less convenience, less everything. But for them, even though we on the outside go, wow, what a tremendous sacrifice, it never feels like sacrifice. To them it feels like this is where the Lord wants me. I'm willing to lose everything in order to get God and to be with Him. And we know this is their heart because the first thing they do when they get back the first thing, like they, however long it took to get there, I imagine many months, they all moved back there. And then it says in Ezra chapter 2, the very end, you have 68 verses. You're welcome for not reading the whole chapter. Some of the heads of the families, when they came to the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem, what they do? They made free will offerings for the house of God to erect it on its site. According to their ability, they gave to the treasury of the works. Like That was what they wanted. They arrived and the first thing they did, God didn't tell them to. 
is they said, let's, hey, let's put some money up to get this restored. To, to get things, our first things right. That's the first thing. They didn't look for a house. They looked for a job. Who knows if they even thought about where they're going to camp. They got there like, okay, cross into the promised land. We're here, guys. Let's put some money in the pot so we can put the building together. So God's house can be built. That's their heart. They want to be present with God and dwell with God and be with God. But let's look at the text that Mark read, which is where we're heading to set up Haggai, which is where we're going. The people are released. They return to God's promised place. And now it seems like they can begin to restore His presence. And so if you look at uh, Ezra chapter 3, the first verse, it says, when the seventh month arrives. That's really important. That's not like when July came around. The seventh month is according to the Jewish calendar. And if you look back biblically into the law, particularly I think Leviticus like 23, it says, in the seventh month, you need to do these things. So the seventh month comes around. These guys have not worshipped the Lord for 70 years. And now they're in the place of God. They're, they're near where His presence once dwelt. They're there as a people. They're like, hey guys, it's the seventh month. You know what we have to do. And if you go back in Leviticus 23, you'll see that that was the month where they celebrated the Day of Atonement. That was the month where they celebrated the Feast of Tabernacles. That was the month where basically they commemorated all of the symbols of their redemption from Egypt. And so they said, we need an altar. So they constructed an altar and they started to make sacrifices, daily sacrifices, worshiping the Lord. But there's a problem. Something's missing. And if you think about it, perhaps they're not even able to worship in some sense. Right? They're able, they've returned to God and they're starting to go through the religious motions. They're starting to kind of follow the rules. They're starting to make the sacrifices, but something is missing. It reminds me of the psalm that David writes in Psalm 51, where he says, Lord, if you wanted sacrifices, I would, I would give it, but what you truly want is a contrite heart. And so, like you have people that return to God, that experience like freedom from captivity, freedom from, from slavery to whatever, and then they return, they start going through the motions, but I'm afraid that something might be missing. And, and as they start going through the motions, it says something in Ezra verse 6 of chapter 3, it says, but the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not laid. Then this altar, they're doing like, wait, 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 what about the house of God? And so in that moment, they realize their worship is incomplete at best, if not worse. And they pay the masons and they start to build. And then we get to the verse that Mark read in the beginning. And I want you to read this really carefully, knowing all that background. It says, When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, and the priests and their vestments came forward with trumpets and the Levites and the sons of Asaph and with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the directions of David, the king of Israel. So they're having a worship service. They're starting to sing. They're blowing trumpets. The foundation has been laid and it says they sang responsively. You want to know why we sing? It's not just to hear awesome singers. It is to respond to the Lord. 
It is our response to what the Lord has done. It says they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord. And they say the same thing that was said when Solomon first built the temple and they did that first worship service. And the people fell on their faces. And what did they say? For He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And then check out what happened. All the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord. All the people shouted. All. Come on, you people. Start singing. right? All people. Every single one shouting the great shout. And they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But notice what it says. But many of the priests and the Levites and the heads of the father's house, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid, though many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping, for the people shouted with a great shout and the sound was heard far away. Can you see what's happening? The foundation is laid and you have a huge group of young people cheering and yelling and praising and singing and then you have a group of older people who were there. And they're weeping. And you can't tell the difference. They're both really loud. You know, what's the difference? All together. And so the question that has plagued lots of smart theologians, like, why are they weeping? Why are the old men weeping? Because the Bible doesn't tell us. And so there's all kinds of theories, right? Some believe they're weeping because the second temple that is going to be built is not as grand as the first temple. And so they'll say, oh, they're idolizing the past. And they'll do full sermons on like, well, don't idolize the past because the future is even more glorious even if it's not... Okay, whatever. I don't think that's what's happening. Some actually believe they might be weeping because they know the older men are not going to be able to see the temple fully restored in its glory. They're going to die before they do. So they're in many ways weeping over the future. But I believe something else is going on here. Because we talk about first things first in this theme. The release of God's people and the freedom that only God can do I believe precedes the returns, right? The release precedes the return. But you have this thing over here. Our goal is to rebuild. Our goal is to experience restoration. Our goal is to to experience the presence of God richly. And there's this in-between step that's missed. This word called repentance. Repentance. See, these old men saw the original temple and they saw it in all its glory, full of the presence of God in the most tangible of ways. And they arrived to see nothing. And they are perhaps recognizing in that moment and remembering in that moment that it was their sin and the sin of their fathers that resulted in God's judgment. Right? Without the temple there, if it's just, if it's just nothing, it's kind of like out of sight. Like, oh yeah, I think there was something here and you're not really thinking about it, but... There's a huge difference between 
knowing about your sin and then experiencing the fullness of the weight and the cost and the destruction of your sin. The foundation is laid. And in that moment, I believe they come face to face with the consequences of their idolatry and the cost has been massive. Their place of worship, the house of God, amounts to a sandbox. Their homeland is a wasteland. Their houses and their towns have been seized and filled up with people who are basically pagans. Their children and many of their grandchildren are probably not with them. They are dispersed throughout the Middle East. And so in that moment, they see the weight of their sin, the massive destruction of their sin, and how it destroyed their family, how it destroyed the nation, how it dishonored the name of God in all those places. And they weep as they sing like, Thanks be the Lord! His steadfast love endures forever. They begin to weep and wail. And I am convinced that there can be no renewal, no restoration, no rebuilding of anyone's life, even if you've returned to the Lord until you have genuinely wept over the depth of your sin. And that's nothing that someone can force you to do. It's something I believe is stirred by the Lord where in a very special moment you begin to see the cost. When God has brought us out of slavery, it's interesting how often we're so quick to get moving for God. I just want to get moving for God and, 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 and do for God. And the truth is, we should get on our faces before God for some time. Like if you don't, if you just like, I'm free! The old life is gone! Let's just go! It's possible you, begin, you might start doing stuff for yourself and not really for God. And it won't last. But the truth is, it's not just tears of pain. Like if it was just like, we should cry over sin, have a nice Sunday. Like that's, that's not where we stop. There's a fullness of this picture here. They're, they're singing and they're weeping over their sin, but they're also weeping tears of joy. And I think in many ways, it Perhaps, I don't know, it may have started as weeping. Okay, God, there's a lot of wailing going on, a lot of joy come. And then it kind of comes together to almost be the same. Because there's much to be joyful about. They weep, yes, over their unfaithfulness that has brought them to this situation. But they also, young and old, are weeping and joyfully so over the glory of God's faithfulness. That God has returned them. That God has brought them out. That God has said, I still love you and I am committed to your restoration. It may look different than what you thought. It may not be as you expected, but it is certain you will be restored. I will make you my people. I will put you in this place and I will dwell with you. That's the setting for Haggai. Because... These people, you can imagine this moment as they're like, oh, 
what have we done? Oh, look what God has done! And they're like, they're, they're passionate. They're eager. They, they have a grasp of, of the situation. And they're wanting to see the glory of God return to this place. But guess what? At the first sign of hardship, they give up. At the first time it gets hard in the world to be God's people, to live in His presence, they give up. And after 16 years of delay from this moment, Haggai shows up. You read that in Ezra 5. Ezra 4 is when they give up. Ezra 5 says, Haggai shows up and says, what are you doing? It's been years. and God's house hasn't been built. You've been about your own stuff and not about my temple, which is really about God's presence. In truth, the second temple will get built. It will be rebuilt in Jerusalem. It will actually be bigger. A little bit different than it was designed to be originally. But I am convinced that God's presence actually never returns to it as it did before. We never have that moment like He did in Exodus or in 2 Chronicles where the glory of God comes. In fact, I could be said that God's presence doesn't return to the temple until Jesus walks into it and takes a scourge of rope and says, what are you doing in my Father's house? It's in that moment where the Son of God returns to the temple and the glory of God is made present again. See, the presence of God is what this is really about. And the presence of God that first dwelt in the garden, and then the presence of God that dwelt in the tabernacle, and then the presence of God that dwelt in the temple, and then the presence of God that dwelt in Jesus. And now, did you know the presence of God that dwells in us by His Spirit? The temple is the place where God's presence dwells. And if that's the case, my heart, this place, this temple is the place where God's presence dwells in the same way that it dwelt here. 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 Not coming up. In that picture, you can imagine. There you go. Now think about that. That's not like, like, like lights coming out everywhere, but that power, that presence where God is. You talk about God writing the law on our hearts. It's because He's there. The presence of God is the place where God is forgiving. The place where God is instructing. The place where God is comforting and reminding us who we are. The place where God is directing us. And if that presence is in our lives, then we should be living totally differently than the world. Did you know the Bible says that we are the temple of God, not offering animal sacrifices like they once did, but according to Romans 12, offering our whole bodies as living sacrifices, living as worshipers in all that we do because wherever we go, the presence of God is with us and it's coming out through us. As Paul writes in the Corinthian letter, he asks a question which I ask you, especially those who who claim to be Christians. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? You know why he writes that? Because they're not living as if that's true. 
They're not living after the first things, which are God's things. Don't you know what is in you? Don't you know? So if that is true, we have to respond. And there are some here who just need to respond to the call of Jesus. There are those who are here who are trapped in slavery. And some of you probably have claimed to be a Christian for a long time. And I would say that perhaps you've never responded to the call of God. You've continued to live in your sin. You've continued to embrace your idolatry and live in slavery. And the Lord has said, you're free. Come on. And you're like, no, I'd like to stay in this jail for a while. I don't want to come out. The door's open. Come. Like, it's really comfy in here. You like three meals a day. I work out in the gym. I like prison. But you're a death sentence. And he's saying, respond. Come, return to me. And if you feel like he is, like, that feeling's hot, like, okay, I feel like, yeah, I am. That's God. That's not Sam. That's not anybody else. That's God's. And because he stirs the hearts of those whom he loves to return to him. But then there are those, honestly, and there's many of us, if we're, if we're real, who say we've returned to the place of God. Who have started to go through the motions and make the sacrifices and do the things that they did, but we've never really come to that place or we don't come to that place enough of repentance. That place that moves us to tears of pain and tears of joy all at the same time. I'm convinced that they stopped for 16 years because they forgot that moment. That they needed to live in that moment. You hope you know that when we come here, the purpose of being here is to see Jesus. And we can say that like, I know, see Jesus. No, like think about that. To see, what does it mean to see Jesus? Well, first it means to see the cross. And in the cross is the place where we shed our tears of sorrow. Because as you look at the cross, you know what you see? Your sin that put him there. Well, my sin's not that bad. Your sin's that bad. Your sin is bad enough that it required the Son of God to die on the cross, to shed his blood, to cover your sin. Like, we have to look at that. We always want to look past that. Like, oh, yeah, you know, I'm bad, but I'm forgiven, I'm forgiven. Like, yes, but do we know the depth of that sin? And the other problem is we stop there, right? The other problem is we dwell there, like, I'm just horrible, I'm just horrible. Yeah, you're pretty horrible, but you know what the resurrection's about? The resurrection is the proof of the forgiveness it is the rejoicing. It is the screaming for joy, right? So you weep and you shout and you wail as you look at the crucifixion. And then you shout and you even cry tears of joy for the resurrection. You say, look, I am really bad. I am a sinner saved by grace. And we focus on both of those at the same time. And that is when we go on our faces to worship. And we say, thanks be to God. His steadfast love endures forever. He covers that sin, and He covers that sin, and He covers that sin, and He's committed to completing the work that He started in me and bringing full, to me to full restoration. That is what Haggai's about. Where we come to the place of go, I need to start where the temple is just a foundation. 
and ask myself, am I pursuing that restoration by starting in the place of repentance, celebrating, if you will, remembering my release from captivity? I pray it will bless us. I pray it will move us. I pray it will make the cross look huge to us and God's grace even bigger. Let's pray.